Welcome to the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman, where Jerry reads a chapter from the New Testament and gives us key insights and life applications along the way. For more information about the Solid Life Journal and reading plans, visit solidlives.com. And now, let's get into today's reading. And Okay, here we go. Mark chapter 10, verse 1. Then he, Jesus, then Jesus arose from there and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. And multitudes gathered to him again, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. Verse 2. The Pharisees came and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Testing him. Now, we really don't know the motives of their heart, whether they were just trying to get him to answer so that they could attack him, or whether they were testing his knowledge, uh, his adeptness. Uh, but let me tell you, they, they picked a big subject. This marriage and divorce issue is a big issue. So they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife, testing him? Verse 3, and Jesus answered and said to them, what did Moses command you? Now, of course, Moses is not, is not alive in this day, you know. So when he says, what did Moses command you? He's not talking about in person. He's talking about the writings of Moses. And generally, we would refer to the first five books of the Bible as the Pentateuch or the Torah or the law, because that's where the laws of Moses are. Now, we say the laws of Moses, but they're really the laws of God. And God gave these laws to Moses, and Moses was the one who wrote them. So when Jesus said, what did Moses command you? He's not saying, well, what's Moses' opinion? No, He's saying, what did God give to Moses to command you? Okay, so they really came from God. So they said, Moses permitted a man to write, excuse me, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. So they may have been pleased to say, oh, I'm glad you asked, because Moses said it was okay to write a certificate of divorce and to divorce your wife. So verse 5. Now we're going to find out the heart of God. And let me read through a number of verses here and let Jesus get this out. This is a big topic, but let's just let the Bible talk. This is the power of reading through the Bible because everybody has an opinion on this. But let's find out what God thinks. Let's find out what Jesus said. So here we go. And Jesus answered and said to them, Because of the hardness of your heart, he, Moses, wrote you this precept. In other words, the precept that you can write your wife a certificate of divorce and dismiss her, send her down the road. He said, because of the hardness of your heart. He didn't say because this was the will of God, because this was the heart of God, because this was necessarily the right thing to do. He said, because of the hardness of your heart. What does that mean? That means that two people could stay in a marriage and because of a hard heart, either one or both, destroy each other. I mean, tear each other down, even if there's not physical abuse, the, the verbal abuse. Somebody could be completely dismantled, destroyed, compromised by words, harshness, the way they're treated. And Jesus said, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted this. Verse 6, but from the beginning of creation... Here's the heart of God. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Boy, that's something just to touch on. God made them male and female. What does that mean? When God created the human race, he created the human race with two genders. That's it. Male and female. See, just let the Bible talk and you'll find out the truth. Because there's a lot going on, a lot of ideas going on in our world today and they're evolving. 
but they're evolving away from the truth of God's word. Verse 7, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and he's still quoting from the Old Testament. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Jesus said they're not two anymore. When you get married and you consummate that marriage with sexual relations, he said, you're not two anymore. You become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. What God has joined together, let not man separate. That's the heart of God on this. Okay, verse 11, or excuse me, verse 10. Now in the house, his disciples also asked him again about the same matter. So he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So let me just talk about adultery and against her, okay? And then we'll move on because this is a big subject. But you have to understand that adultery can be sexual, but it can also just be the heart, okay? Because Jesus said, whoever, he said, uh, he said, it's written in the law. He said, you've heard it said, who, whoever commits adultery, uh, you've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. He said, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So see, therefore, all he did was look with lust and desire, see? But Jesus said adultery was committed. So notice, Jesus is not saying adultery is equal to sexual immorality. Now, they go together often, but the Bible also talks about spiritual adultery. When we turn from God to the love of money, to mammon, or to pleasures, or to a false god, or anything, the Bible calls that adultery. You had a commitment made to one, and you broke that commitment and went to another. See, and sometimes that does involve with, uh, with people sexual things, but it doesn't have to. Jesus is saying, look, if a man divorces his wife and marries somebody else, it's adultery. Now, why is it adultery? It's, it, whether there was sex involved inappropriately or not, it's adultery. Here's why. I'm making a lifetime commitment to you. I will be with you, committed to you, married to you for the rest of my life. And now I'm over here in an altar, and I'm making a commitment to somebody else to be married to them for the rest of my life. See, Jesus is saying, that's wrong. You made a covenant. You said for life, and you're not keeping it. So Jesus is saying, you can't act like that first one didn't happen. It happened. And that's the way God designed it to be for life. So Jesus is just simply being honest about how this works. When you make a lifetime commitment, you keep the lifetime commitment. And when you break it, God just has to acknowledge you broke that. That was, that was an adultery not keeping that first lifetime commitment. See that? But notice he also says, if a man divorces his wife and marries another, commits adultery against her. Why is that? Because now here's his wife, and he went with another woman and and leaves this wife here, okay? She wants to be married. She doesn't want to live by herself. And so what does she have to do now to get into a marriage with somebody else? She has to make a lifetime commitment, thus breaking her vow to be faithful to this other person. God is just saying, look, look, let, I'm just going to be honest with you about the fact that 
It's not like God forgets that you made a lifetime commitment to somebody and now you're making it somebody else. But notice Jesus is clearly saying the blame was on the man in this case because he's the one that divorced his wife to marry somebody else, left her, left her hanging. And so it puts her in a position to where she has to also break her lifetime commitment to make a lifetime commitment to somebody else. But then he turns right around and says, and if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. In other words, if our spouse is still there and still living to go make a commitment to somebody else is adultery. Now, does that mean that if a man leaves his wife or if a woman leaves her husband and marries somebody else that God doesn't want that person that's left now to get married again and she just can't do it? I don't believe so. I don't believe so. But it puts her in a position to where she is forced because she wants to be a married person. In fact, Matthew said causes her to commit adultery. Causes her. If a man divorces his wife and marries another causes his wife to commit adultery. See, except for sexual immorality, unless she had already been promiscuous outside of marriage, then he would be causing her to commit adultery. See, so God's not forbidding that lady to go get remarried, or if the uh, reverse was the truth for that man to go and remarry. But he's breaking a lifetime commitment to do it. And so God's saying, look, let's just call it like it is. Doesn't mean you can't be forgiven. That's something I want to close with. God still forgives us, okay? But he's, he's saying, see and value the marriage covenant the way it really is. It is serious. The two become one. So if you've already been divorced, maybe even more than once, look, whatever was your responsibility, confess whatever. Let the blood of Jesus forgive you. But from today forward, let's... Let's treat these things the way that God does. And let's also be honest with other people when they want to know the truth. Don't let your story compromise the truth about marriage. Let's allow the Bible to teach us the way that it is. Thank God. Okay, verse 13. Uh, Then they brought little children to him that they might touch them, that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was greatly displeased and said to them, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. God doesn't want us to be immature and certainly not, you know, uneducated or uninformed like little children, you know, who just don't know a lot. No, but he wants us to be like little children in the sense that when God talks to us and instructs us, we believe him and we follow him like little children do. He wants us to be like that. But if we're too smart for God and we think that our opinion is more important than his opinion, instead of just following him, he said, you can't even enter the kingdom of God when you're like that. Watch this. Then Jesus took the children up in his arms, laid his hands on them and blessed them. Don't you love that picture? Okay, here we go. 17. Now, as he was going out, uh, going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So he's asking the right question. What do I need to do to inherit eternal life? This is the rich young ruler, by the way. Verse 18. So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. 
Jesus asked another good, or asked a good question here, because he said, good teacher. And Jesus said, why do you call me good? Well, Jesus knows he's God, too. He's the Son of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus doesn't know if he knows that. And so Jesus said, why did you call me good? No one's good but one. That's God. You know the commandments. Uh, and he's answering the question now, what do I do to inherit eternal life? You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. And listen to the man's response. And he answered and said to him, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. All these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Oh, I appreciate that. Loved him and said to him, one thing you lack Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, take up the cross, and follow me. So he's inviting him to be a disciple, but he's saying, you need to go sell everything you have, give it away to the poor, you'll have treasure in heaven, come follow me. Take up the cross. Verse 22, but he, the man, was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This was a wealthy man. That's why we call him the rich young ruler. He had great possessions. He could not let go of the security of his wealth. He wanted it. He liked it. He felt comfortable with it. And even when Jesus was saying, come follow me, be my disciple, he couldn't do it. So watch this. Then Jesus, the man, walked away. Uh, sorrowful. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. It's hard for one who has riches to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at his words. They didn't realize that that had anything to do with it. The disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again. Now listen to the clarity. Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard it is for those who trust in riches. There's the real issue. It's the heart. How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, uh, an eye of a needle. Okay, well, uh, it seems to me that this is talking about a literal needle, you know, trying to get a thread through the eye of a literal needle. Well, to get a camel through the eye of a needle, that's impossible. But there is also a belief, and when we go to Israel, we see it, that they have these big gates all over Jerusalem, we see them. But within the big gates, they'll have a, a doorway that's much smaller. And uh, at the end of the day, in, in a city that needed protection, when they would close the gates in the evening to protect that city from the enemies, well, if anybody came traveling after the gates were closed on a camel, they would not want to open the big gates for that camel to get through. So they would only open that smaller doorway that was traditionally called the eye of the needle. And what do you have to do to get your camel through? Well, you have to unload the whole camel. You got to get the camel down on its knees, which is not always easy. And then that camel has to work its way through that little doorway. And then on the other side, you can load that camel back up. But interesting, it gives a great picture that, you know, often somebody of wealth, somebody that has so much to get to the kingdom of God, they have to offload all that stuff and really put their their trust and their dependency in the Lord. And so it really creates a wonderful picture. And this is what Jesus said, go unload, go unload and come through. And, and here's what really plays into it is what happens now. Watch this. So 
It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who then can be saved? They didn't realize, like, wow, because there, there are, they knew wealthy people. Who then can be saved? Wealthy Jewish people, by the way. Not everybody Jewish in this day was wealthy. That's for sure. There were a lot of people suffering, struggling with poverty under the oppression of the Romans. So watch this. But Jesus looked at them and said, with men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Well, what's possible? It is possible for a man of or a woman with wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. But you have to put your trust, transfer your trust from the money over to the Lord. It is possible. Then Peter began to say to Jesus, see, we have left all and followed you. Lord, you remember, right? We left everything, all the fish and the, the nets and everything. We dropped it to follow you. So Jesus answered and said, listen to this. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands. He said house. And now he says lands, lands, plural, for my sake and the gospels, for my sake and the gospels, who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So Jesus is now explaining what he didn't explain to that man, that if that man had given all those things up, uh, sold them, given to the poor, followed Jesus, that Jesus said, oh yeah, you would have received even a hundredfold as much. You'd be trusted by the Lord. That you now put your trust in the Lord so he could trust you to bless you. And then you would do with those riches what he told you to do. But see, the man didn't stick around for that. He went away sorrowful, but the disciples got the explanation that God blesses us when we're obedient. Okay, here we go. Verse 32. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the twelve aside again and began to tell them the things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going, Jesus said, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and scourge him. That's the, the whipping with the cat of nine tails and such. They'll scourge him and spit on him and kill him, and the third day he will rise again. So Jesus is just laying it out so clearly. Watch this. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him saying, Teacher, we want you to do, uh, do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. <laughs> so they believe that he is the Son of God, that he's going to be in heaven, and they want to sit on either side of him. Verse 38, but Jesus said to them, you do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Well, he's talking about the death, his death. They said to him, we are able. So Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink the cup that I drink. And with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. Well, uh, James was indeed killed. And uh, Acts chapter 12, actually. He was martyred, so he did drink that same cup on behalf of the Lord. John 
was not at, martyred, but he he was. Uh, they attempted to martyr him, and he didn't die. But nonetheless, he did drink that cup. But the Lord preserved him, and thank God he did, because after that happened, he wrote likely first, second, and third John, but certainly the book of Revelation. Thank God that he was not dead, and he wrote that book. So Jesus said, you will drink that cup that I'm going to drink and be baptized with that baptism. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those to whom it is prepared. So apparently the Father has already prepared the seating arrangement in heaven. Verse 40 or 41, And when the ten heard it, they heard about James and John, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, or in other words, exercise dominion and such. They take that authority that they have over people, and they really work that authority. He said they lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to be great among you, uh, you shall be a servant. Let me read that again. Yet it shall not be so among you, but whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant. Those who desire to be great shall be your servant. Wow, that's powerful. And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Isn't that powerful? That sort of outlines the whole book of Mark. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Now they came to Jericho. Uh, as he went out of Jericho with his disciples and a great multitude, blind Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, sat by the road begging. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Then many warned him to be quiet, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Oh, he had heard that Jesus had healed people. By saying Son of David, he believed he was the Messiah. He was saying, You're the Messiah. Have mercy on me. You've healed other people. Have mercy on me. So Jesus stood still and commanded him to be called. Then they called the blind man, saying to him, Be of good cheer. Rise, he's calling you. Nobody thought Jesus was going to pay attention to him. But when he stopped and called for him, they said, hey, he wants you. Come on. Watch this. Verse 50. And throwing aside his garment, he rose and came to Jesus. So Jesus answered and said to him, what do you want me to do for you? You know, here's a blind man. You would think he already knows. But Jesus said, what do you want me to do? He's going to allow him to ask for what he wants. What do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, Rabboni, or that's teacher, Rabboni, that I may receive my sight. Then Jesus said to him, Go your way, watch this, your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. Well, we know it's the power of God, but what is he saying? Because you believed that I was the son of David, the Messiah, and had power and authority on me to do this, you started yelling over there, calling for me over there, and because of your faith, you're standing here, I'm declaring this to you, you're going to receive your sight. Jesus is saying, I didn't initiate this. You initiated this. You called to me in faith, and I'm, I'm and I'm doing it for you. Go your way. Your faith has made you well. 
And immediately he received his sight and followed Jesus on the road. I love how Jesus, instead of just trying to take all the credit for himself, he deserves it all. But instead of saying, I, I'm doing this for you, Jesus said, your faith, you're the one who believed, you're the one who called out in faith. And so therefore, like turning on a light switch, well, electrical power is what causes the lights to go on. But the person that just flipped the switch is the one that triggered it. And Jesus is giving that credit saying, you and with your faith triggered this. Oh, may we all catch these truths and trigger the release of God's power and promises in our lives by believing and calling out to him in faith. All right. I look forward to tomorrow, Mark 11. Thank you for joining us for the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman. And thank you to those of you who have partnered with Solid Lives to help get this daily podcast and other resources like it to thousands of people around the world. If you would like to partner with Solid Lives, visit solidlives.com give. To find out more about the ministry of Solid Lives, how you can be a part of this church planting and disciple making movement, or for more great teachings and resources by Jerry, visit solidlives.com. We also want to invite you to check out Jerry's other podcast called The Jerry Dearman Podcast. Here, Jerry shares with us at least weekly from God's Word, challenging us and equipping us to fulfill the amazing plan that God has for our lives. You can find links to this podcast as well as Jerry's YouTube channel online at solidlives.com. Thank you again so much for joining us, and we'll see you right here tomorrow as we jump into the New Testament Daily with Jerry Dearman.